Christ, he stands at the center of our faith. That's why we call it Christianity, right? He is fully God and fully man who came to earth. He performed miracles. He lived a sinless life. And then he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, and then ascended to heaven. Jesus is the center of our faith. We also know that Jesus chose 12 leaders, what the Bible calls apostles, to be the founders of the church, right? They're the ones who established the church and, and you know, put together the scriptures there, passed on the teachings of Jesus. They were instrumental in founding the church. Well, since the apostles died, the church has now spread to every nation in the world. And there have been literally hundreds of millions of Christians as a result that have come since the passing of the apostles. Of all those Christians since the apostles, who has been the most influential? Some might point to Martin Luther, who ignited the Protestant Reformation, which of course left a huge imprint on the church and the world. Others might point to Billy Graham, who preached to more people than anyone who has ever lived. Other names could be mentioned, no doubt. Here's the person I would say has been the most influential Christian after the apostles. His name? Augustine, a 5th century bishop and theologian. The reason I say that is because without him, there may never have been a Martin Luther or a Billy Graham. His impact greatly shaped the beliefs of Christianity, and later figures are highly indebted to him. For example, when it comes to, say, the Protestant Reformation, what the Protestant Reformation was in a large degree was simply recovering what Augustine had said thousand, a thousand plus years beforehand. B.B. Warfield was a great theologian at Princeton. He said that Augustine, quote, gave us the Reformation. When the reformers were trying to reform the church, they cited Augustine more than any other early church leader. The magazine Christian History said, quote, after Jesus and Paul, Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. So he was influential on his day, and then when the church needed reformation, they returned to Augustine to lead the charge in reforming the church. And his impact has continued on in remarkable ways. Now, part of Augustine's influence is his brilliance. The guy was a really smart guy. David Brooks, he's a political and cultural columnist for the New York Times. In a recent book, he discussed Augustine. Now, Brooks is Jewish, and he says of Augustine, I was familiar with Augustine, but I had never really read in depth or read about him. I now consider Augustine the smartest human being I've ever encountered in any form. Pretty high praise. So part of his influence was his brilliance. Part of it was his productivity. The guy was a machine, okay? The guy was a machine. They, they, they say that he has in print over five million words. He just was constantly writing and producing. And he covered all kinds of topics. 
we talk about, should the nation go to war? Should America go to war? So what do we do? We, just, we go and we tap into the just war tradition. You ever heard of that phrase before, just war? Is it right for a, war to, a country to go to war? Well, who came up with all that? Let's go back to Augustine. All these different topics, he was foundational. He shaped the church and he shaped Western civilization because he was so brilliant and so productive. Part of his influence too, though, was his godliness. He wasn't just a brilliant mind, a productive mind, but he was a soul on fire for God. And he wanted people to know the transforming power of the gospel. And he gave his life to serving Christ. Today, we're going to look at his life. Now, before I do that, let me say a couple things, as I always do. You know my regard for teaching the scriptures. That's what a pastor should do week in and week out so that we know better the mind and heart of God. We need to know what the word of God says. But each year, in case you're new, I like to do this, I like to take one message out of the year to discuss a hero of the faith. And I do this in part because of what scripture says. Scripture talks about the incredible power of example. You see this in Philippians 3.17 where Paul commands the readers there, that church, to follow his example and the example of other godly Christians. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He said, well, why are examples important? Well, I'm convinced that God uses examples to grow us spiritually. I think discipleship, becoming like Christ, is just as much caught as it is taught. In other words, it's what you see around you just as much as it is what you hear. So in other words, if you want to grow as a godly father, it helps to be around, rub shoulders with other godly fathers. If you want to grow in your prayer life, you know what helps? To be in some prayer groups or some individual sessions where other people pray and you learn how to pray in a more fervent and committed fashion. I truly believe that Christians who grow the most are those who immerse themselves in regular fellowship and then learn from others' example who are further along in the faith. And yes, there's always someone further along in the faith than you. Even if there's not, there might be areas where they're further along. We always can learn from the example of others. So I think primarily our example should come from our local church and believers that we rub shoulders with. But I think it's also vital that we tap into church history. Certain individuals have been used by God to inspire and teach us in a powerful way. We don't put them on a pedestal because we know that they're sinners just like everybody else. But it's encouraging to know that God can use us just like he used them despite their failures. Now, I like to alternate. This is the, I look back. This is the eighth year I've done this. So I do like to alternate between male and female heroes of the faith. And so this year is the male's turn. And so we're going to look at Augustine's life. And then I want to conclude with some very important biblical application for us to consider. We have a lot to learn from this guy. And his story is very interesting. So let me begin here with the first part of his life is the early years of Augustine. Now, just to give you guys a little bit of context The early church experienced a lot of persecution, but by the time Augustine came on the scene, 
Christianity had been made the state religion of the Roman Empire, so it was no longer persecuted. Not everybody was happy about this change of events, as we'll see later. But Augustine was born in 354 AD. His name was Aurelius Augustinus. He was born in the small North African town of Tagast. Now, in our modern-day geography, we got a map here. He was born in modern-day Algeria, kind of in the northeast corner there. His father was a middle-income farmer. He had a brother and a sister. As far as his religious upbringing, his father worshipped the pagan gods of Carthage, which was a major city about 150 miles away. His mother was named Monica, and she's very famous as well. She was a devout Christian who prayed constantly for her son's salvation. But he was in the midst of rebelling, especially in his teenage years, started pursuing sin much more so during his teenage years. At the age of 17, Augustine goes off to school at Carthage, apparently the only one of his siblings, he had a brother and a sister, the only one who went off to school. And he received a great education. He fell in love with his studies, had a great mind, and which everyone noticed, I'm sure, immediately. While he was there, he also got into what was called Manichaeism. You say, what was that? That was a, a belief system about 100 years earlier by a guy named Manny. He was a Persian prophet, so to speak. And what Manny did is he combined Christianity, Gnosticism, and other pagan beliefs, kind of stirred it all up there, and he had this new system of beliefs. It was a Christian heresy. It believed that there was, there was good and there was evil, and they were kind of equal powers, and they fought against each other and so forth, but none was really stronger than another. And so the rest of the world was caught up in all this. Augustine found that persuasive, and he followed that for many years. When he finished his studies, he returned back home to Tagast, and he taught rhetoric as well as Manichaeism. He tried to keep that secret from his mom. But Monica found out that he was now following this, and Monica kicked him out of the house. So, tough love indeed. So he went to Carthage to teach rhetoric, and later from there he went to Rome. Monica moved to Carthage, begged him not to go to Rome. Before he had moved, she went to Carthage and begged him not to move. He assured her, no, I'm going to stay put here in Carthage. Well, Next thing you know, he's off to Rome. He's there for a year, again, teaching, didn't like it in Rome because the students were difficult. Then he goes to Milan, kind of his dream job there. He's teaching rhetoric at the imperial court. While he's there, this is around 384, so he's about 30 years old or so at this point. While he's there, he starts doubting his Manichaean beliefs he, become, he becomes friends with Ambrose, who's the bishop of Milan. Now, like Augustine, Ambrose was a very bright guy, and he helped Augustine to start seeing the truthfulness of Christianity because Augustine had all these questions, and no one was really answering his questions. So uh, Ambrose really helped him, but as of yet, he still was not a Christian. Monica traveled now to Milan to visit her son. And she urged him to break off his relationship that he had with his lover, longtime lover, with whom he shared a son. Augustine did not marry her, 
though I think it had been about 10 or 12 years by now, he did not marry her because she was from a lower social standing. And if he did, that would have ruined his kind of social and political standing that he was so eager to maintain. So Monica urged him to break off this relationship and to marry someone whom he would kind of find as an equal, so to speak. So Augustine, with all of this in mind, he broke off the relationship. However, he soon turned to another woman. So he, this, kind of take a second with me and regroup here. So this is Augustine. He's in Milan, this, be- this powerful uh, teacher, great rhetorician, and he's learning more about Christianity. His mom's praying for him. He's kind of starting to understand things as well. But yet he's, he's also in the midst of a lot of spiritual and moral turmoil. He's starting to see things, but yet he loves his sin. He loves his sin. And so he's really in anguish about all this. This leads to the second part of his life, the conversion of Augustine really one of the most famous conversion stories in church history because it's so interesting and also just so detailed what he shares. So it's 386 now. He's 32 years old. Augustine was talking with his best friend, Olypius, and they were talking about a very famous individual in the church named Antony. This was a guy who went out to the desert and was a monk, and people flocked to him because he was this holy, righteous man, very devout, lived an incredibly simple life, And Augustine, hearing about this Antony, was pierced, learning about this incredible devoted servant of God. And here he is all tangled up in his sin, and he feels like he's in bondage. So he hears about Antony. He's all in turmoil. He goes out. He's in this house. He goes out to a garden area outside, and he's in deep anguish, literally, as he relates it, hitting his fist against his forehead, sitting down, holding his knees, He's just in a lot of spiritual turmoil. And I'm going to let him tell you what happened next from his famous book called The Confessions. He says, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying, how long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? All at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say. But again and again it repeated the refrain, quote, Take it and read. Take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game in which children used to chant words like these. But I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed my flood of tears and stood up telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the first passage on which my eyes should fall. So I hurried back to the place where Olypius was sitting, seized the book of Paul's epistles. He had a book there that was full of Paul's letters and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. And this is what he read from Romans 13, 13 to 14. Quote, Now, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries, rather arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. I had no, then he says, I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, 
It was though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Isn't that a cool story? The wrestling was over. He had become a Christian. And his life started changing pretty dramatically. He went and he resigned from his professorship. Then he moved to a country villa in a place called Kasakayakum. He lived there with his mother and his friends for about a year and a half. Then he goes back to Milan to be baptized by Ambrose, the bishop, along with his son and his friend Olypius, who had become a Christian as well. So monumental, great occasion there for Augustine. And his mother was there to witness the whole thing. Sadly, Monica died later that year. But she could rejoice knowing that her prayers had been answered. And let, me, let that be an encouragement to parents to continue to pray. Because she had gone years and years. I mean, can you imagine her heartache watching Augustine all those years running from the Lord like that? But she kept just Pressing on, pressing on, praying, 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 praying. God answered her prayers. Don't give up, church. Never give up. Never give up. You may not see it like Monica did, but keep pressing on. You never know. God is faithful. Amen? So that's... The second part of his life. Now we come to the third part of his life, the ministry of Augustine. So when he returned to Tagast, he continued to experience hardship. His son, I think it was about 15 at the time, he died as well. Augustine decided to, keep, to deepen his commitment to the Lord, and he formed basically kind of this monastic community with some friends of his where they focused on prayer and reading Scripture. Well, 391, we move ahead a little bit here, he wants to form a monastery. His hometown was not really the best place for it because it was small and off the beaten path. So he goes to a bigger place called Hippo, a town, a city called Hippo. And he also goes there because they have a bishop. He doesn't want to be a bishop. He wants to go there and not be pressured to be a bishop. So he goes to this town where they already had this solid bishop. So he's then, then in Hippo. He visits the church in Hippo. Things took an unexpected turn. People there were aware of Augustine. I don't know if it was just his mind or his devotion to Christ, but the word had spread about him at the church. So he just shows up there and visits. And when he shows up, the bishop, instead of preaching his, pre his prepared sermon, puts it aside and starts talking about how there needs to be more priests in Hippo. Well, as he's preaching, everybody starts staring at Augustine. <laughs> and they didn't just stare. Eventually, they basically grab him and push him up to the front, and they make him a priest. That's one way to get more people to start serving in the church, I guess, huh? Just grab them and do it. It's, it's almost kind of humorous that they saw the tears in his eyes and the people thought that he was crying because they hadn't made him bishop yet. They'd only made him a priest. <laughs> and they assured him that good things happen to those who wait. 
Well, so the bishop quickly started handing off duties to Augustine, and within five years, he was now the bishop of Hippo. And he served in that capacity until 430 A.D. God uses some strange circumstances, doesn't he, sometimes? Unbelievable. And so when he assumed this role, the church in North Africa, Africa was in a lot of turmoil. There were internal and external challenges. Let me give you a couple. One issue was Manichaeism. That had not gone away. It was still, still around, had waned a little bit, but it still had a sizable following. Obviously, Augustine was very familiar with that. I think he followed about 10 years or so. And so what he did was he orchestrated a debate with one of their leading proponents, and he crushed him, absolutely demolished the guy in a debate, and the guy's name was Fortunatus. He just left town, and that kind of put an end to that. Another thing that came up was Pelagianism. So whereas Manichaeism was a cult, Pelagianism was was an in-house church debate, and it sprang from a very popular monk in Britain named Pelagius. He taught that Christians are, or people are entirely good, and we can choose God without any grace at all. Of course, we know that's not what the Bible teaches that we do need God's grace to understand salvation. And so Augustine jumped into the fray, issued a much more biblical response, and, of course, his his view prevailed. Many other things he was involved with, don't want to get into all of them, but he he was just a very faithful servant, not just uh, preaching and teaching, involved in all kind of different pastoral responsibilities there. He trained others who took leadership roles in churches throughout North Africa, and and left a remarkable legacy. Probably the greatest thing, though, was his writings because he wrote commentaries on books of the Bible. He wrote uh, books about theological topics like the Trinity that really helped the church to understand some of these topics in greater clarity. Now, you might just think, oh, that that was Augustine. He kind of had his, you know, he was up in some ivory tower or whatever. Actually, it was the exact opposite. He was ministering in a day and age which was incredibly tumultuous because it was the final phases of the Roman Empire, which was falling apart. In fact, in his mid-50s, in 410, that is when Rome was sacked. 410 was when Rome was sacked. Okay, so what? Rome was sacked. Rome was the centerpiece of the Roman Empire. For centuries, it had dominated the world. And so when it fell, it was like something we cannot even imagine. And the rest of the empire was teetering. And so he's ministering during this time. And skipping ahead to about 430 A.D., the Vandals from Germany, this was a barbarian group, they started invading down into North Africa. Augustine hears about how two other bishops had been tortured to death by the Vandals, and they're heading his way. The Vandals weren't nice guys. That's where we get the term vandalized, right? They like to destroy stuff. So people were telling him, Augustine, get out of here, right? Go flee. But he love his heart. He said, no, I'm going to stay here with the church. After the siege had been going on about three months, though, he died, not from a sword, but from a fever. Interestingly, the vandals broke through the city, broke through the walls, burned much of the city. But amazingly, 
They didn't burn his library. So all of those incredible writings that he had had been preserved for the benefit of the church. What can we take away from his life? So much to say, but let me use his two most famous books kind of as a springboard to think about what Augustine could mean for us in the present day. The first is his book, Confessions. This book, Confessions. Now, when he used that word confession, he used it to talk about a confession of sin, right? And in his book, he shares some of his things that he went through prior to Christ and shared about his struggles that he had. But he also uses that word confession in the way that it is used, the way we use it as well, as a confession of faith, right? It was a confession of faith and that everything was going back to God. And the first uh, beginning phases of the book, he writes, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? Very famous sentence he put there. You have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And the rest of his book really is, is his spiritual journey and finding that rest in God. And here's the key point I want us to take away from that. God is the goal for your spiritual journey. God is the goal for your spiritual journey. That means that we need to stop pursuing other things that do not lead to that rest. After his conversion, Augustine realized that God had been there waiting for him all along, waiting the whole time to seek him as the goal of the journey. But there was always something else. When he was a teenager, he was off running with his friends. When he was a you know, striving rhetorician teacher, it was to make fame and, a, and, and achievement. And, and then at the final phases, he was in bondage to sexual immorality. There was always something. He needed to seek God first. The Bible calls this repentance, where we do a spiritual U-turn, where we stop seeking other things and start seeking first and foremost the will of God. Scripture tells us that salvation is based on not just our belief in Christ, but also repenting of our sin, that it's two sides of the same coin. Amen? This really needs to be recaptured in the church today. This really needs to be recaptured. Because unfortunately, it's sort of, it's sort of been permeating throughout churches for a long time that all you really need to do is just believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter if there's change in your life. It doesn't matter just as long as you say a prayer that you're okay. We need to seek God as the final destination of the journey and clear aside everything else and make him the focus. The best way you can tell if someone is saved is by the fruit. Is there fruit? 
Is there a change in your life? You should have a newfound desire to seek God's word, to pray, to share your faith, to connect to the church, to share, to share your life with other believers. You become a new person, don't you? By the power of God. I didn't say a perfect person, but a new person. This must be the confession of the church. It's not about going through a confirmation class. It's not about being baptized, even as significant as that is. It's about pushing aside all these other things, our indifference, our goals, our achievements, all these things, money, security, and saying Christ is the journey, the end of the journey, the goal of the journey that I am seeking after. That's the confession. That's what changed Augustine. That is what is the confession of the church. Amen? We're not a social club. We're not a humanitarian organization. We're the church. We're the people who confess to know God and whose hearts rest in him. Augustine reminds us of the power of this confession. Have you confessed that in your life? confessed that he is the end of the journey. I've stopped looking everywhere else. Stop chasing all those other ambitions and dreams. I've repented of that sin. I need to lay it down, and I've, I've decided I'm going to lay it down to the best of my ability and seek Christ first. We need more of that in the church. People sold out and saying, I'm going to follow Christ. That is the goal of the spiritual journey. The second thing that I want us to pick up from Augustine life, Augustine's life is his other book, The City of God. About 850 pages here. Light reading. In this classic, he explains that the world is made of two cities. Two cities. The city of man and the city of God. These aren't actual cities, but they're spiritual cities, so to speak. Each city has its own chief desire. The city of man, what is its chief desire? Man's desires, right? To please man, to glorify man. Well, the city of God focuses on pleasing God. He says, mankind is divided into two sorts, such as living according to man and such as living according to God. Now, he says that those who live according, those who are citizens of God, you actually have a dual citizenship. Do you know that? You do live in the city of man, and you're actually a better citizen than the rest because you don't seek your own desires. You should seek the betterment of other people, right? But, so you do have a foot in the city of man, but your chief love and desire is the city of God. As I said, this book is massive, hugely important. So important for the course of Western civilization was this book called The City of God. Now, keep in mind the context of when he wrote this book. As I said, the Roman Empire was crumbling. And a lot of people were blaming, guess who, because of it? Christians. Think about it. We had been around for centuries, this great dynasty. And now we've embraced the Christian faith. And we're being destroyed. It's the fault of the Christians. 
That was the argument. He had refugees from Rome coming to his city, no doubt, probably saying some of those things. So this faith, which was taking off, was now being severely challenged. Of course, the charge is absurd because the Roman Empire had been crumbling for a long time, and if anything, Christianity had held off some of its destruction. But people were making this claim, very serious charge, and it needed to be addressed. You say, well, that's neat, but what has this got to do with today? Well, if you think about it, we find ourselves in a similar situation. Our nation has remarkably benefited from the impact of Christianity, yet today people will often minimize the impact of Christianity in the past, will revise our history. They argue that Christianity is harmful, bigoted, intolerant, and so on. They want to marginalize Christianity so that we can make society better by silencing the Christian voice. I think these parallels are striking. A great nation struggling and Christianity is to blame. And the future of our nation is on the line. So what do we do? Well, many Christians simply want to just kind of stick with the confessions. What I mean by that is, I know Christ. I have a relationship with Christ. That means the world to me. Praise God for that. But that's all I want to do. That's all that I want. I want to focus on me and Christ and my church family. But that's the extent of it. What we need to do is follow Augustine's lead here and put confessions together with the city of God. Because when the time was there and the church needed to speak, that is when he stepped up to the front. Because the church needs to be, if we're to be faithful, we have to be faithful to our calling. And Jesus calls us to be salt and light, doesn't he? We need to stand in the gap. The church must be the one who, in the midst of being under attack, the church must stand up and declare the truth. The gospel is under attack. This whole Western civilization that Augustine was pivotal in establishing is unraveling at break, breakneck speed. And our response can't be to hide in a corner and hope things get better. We can't do that and just kind of hope the vandals will leave us alone. They don't leave you alone. The church has to be salt and light. And what that means is that means the light must expose the darkness to show that these things are, will lead to further death and destruction of our society. He did that so brilliantly in the city of God saying, oh, these pagan gods that you used to worship, they did all these sinful, immoral things. No wonder the people live that way they do. They're just following the gods they worship. He destroyed that argument. And so Christians need to expose these things that are leading to a dead end in our society. But also we need to be the light that points out a better picture, a hopeful picture. Not just doom and gloom, but this is actually for your good, for your order, for your benefit. 
that this message is not repressive, but it is liberating and beneficial. And so, church, this is something that requires all hands on deck. All hands on deck. Yes, we need thinkers and theologians and leaders like Augustine who can be out in the public and making the debates and writing the books and so forth. We also need church leaders who are faithfully equipping the saints to do the work here, right? So leaders, church, local church leaders equipping the people. And most of all, though, the church, all of us, needs to be participating. It's not on the shoulders of someone like an Augustine or a pastor alone. It is the church as a whole to wake up and to stand up and to be salt and light in this culture. Sharing the hope that lies within them. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So church, let's apply those two things in our hearts, making Christ the end of that journey, putting Augustine's confessions, making sure that has happened in our lives, and then being the salt and light that God has called us to be. We can't be faithful if we're hiding in a corner. Souls are at stake. The nation is at stake. We need to be called to action. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful that you use sinful, broken people like Augustine to make such a difference. God, it encourages us that you want to use us as well. Lord, we have no pretensions of having the impact of this man, but that doesn't matter. What we want to be is just found faithful to our Lord. Lord, I pray for someone here today who has never got it, that you're waiting for them. All along, you've been waiting that they would simply humble themselves, repent of their sins, and believe in Christ. You are there, arms wide open, ready to embrace. Lord, I pray for, that, pray for that to occur today, to not push it off, push it off and push it off and one more day and one more day, that today would be the day of salvation, to walk into the freedom that Christ offers. And Lord, I pray you would also help us to be salt and light. I pray for each one of us that we would seek to be equipped, to be learners of your word, to know what your word says and then to live it out in our lives, to take advantage of times and resources of equipping here at the church or different places online and so forth. Lord, help us to be a voice. 
Help us to respond the way you've called us to be. If you decide to tarry and come at a later time, God, we pray that we would be found faithful as later generations look back at us and say, we're so thankful that they stood in the gap, that they were that salt and light that you called us to be. Lord, we need your grace. It is not our willpower, but it is by your grace alone that we can do these things. We want to be change agents for your name and for your glory. We ask that you would do all of this so that the name of Christ would be exalted in this whole world. We ask it in his name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.